Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to Arguing History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today we will be discussing with Master Historian Jeremy Black, Professor Emeritus in the Department of History at Exeter University, and without a doubt the most prolific historian writing in the Anglophone world today. And the topic of our discussion is the following. Was Churchill, in the words of a panel of academics at Cambridge University, uh, a racist, white supremacist, whose British empire was no better, morally speaking, than that of the Third Reich? Or was he, in the words of uh, former Prime Minister Harold Macmillan, the greatest Englishman in history? Jeremy, welcome to the show. Hello. Uh, Jeremy, the first question I have for you is the following. Was Churchill, in fact, a racist, white supremacist? And if so, does it matter insofar as such views were the norm for most of his lifetime? Well, that throws together a number of different questions. So first of all, let me just say, um, and it's particularly appropriate that we're discussing this on an American program, because, of course, Churchill was uh, an Anglo-American. His mother was American, and he had strong interests in America. Um, Secondly, let me say that a lot of these topics have been well rehearsed. What you are referring to specifically is the way in which the criticism of Churchill has been weaponized in the last, I'd say, primarily three years, two years even more, as part of a debate over Britain's um, past or indeed a diatribe against Britain's past. So you're asking a question, was Churchill at the time a white racist? It depends what you mean by a racist. If by a racist you mean somebody who was conscious of and interested in supposed differences between people of different or contrasting ethnicities and had a notion of nationhood as resting on specific ethnicities, yes, then he would be a racist, just as indeed many people are today, including, I mean, in the diatribes directed against so-called white supremacy come on, on the whole from people who are very hypersensitized to issues of racism, no doubt their own racism as well. Um, if you mean, should, are we in danger of thinking of Churchill as particularly or peculiarly uh, racist, then I don't think that's a, a, a specifically helpful approach. He was in many respects a man of his times. He was an extremely talented man of his times, as Macmillan uh, pointed out. Uh, Macmillan, of course, was a contemporary, younger contemporary, but a contemporary. Um, if what we are looking for is taking values outside time, then that is not, of course, what historians do. And I mean, you were interested, I was interested in your reference to um, the academic uh, comments. I think you'll be, I think it's fair to say that we're not talking about distinguished historians um, in the criticism of Churchill. No, we're not. We're talking about people who um, are more versed in the arts of uh, um, political mudslinging, or I should say academic mudslinging, than uh, serious scholarship. Yes, I think that's a fair discussion. I mean, I discussed some of this in my book, Imperial Legacies, the British Empire Around the World, which in fact was published in your hometown of New York. Um, and I think it's quite strange, shall we say, 
some of the arguments that have been applied. I mean, fair enough that one is, I am, uh, people concerned about issues in our own generation and trying to, um, through those, hope to create a better future for our children. But to, um, uh, as it were, sort of destroy all impression of the past. I mean, let me give you an obvious point about this. Um, there is in Britain an established church, the position of the established church and indeed society as a whole and the legal code on things that are now permitted and legal, um, homosexual acts between consenting adults, uh, uh, divorce, abortion, one could go on and on, uh, are ones that held now or repeated now would lead uh, many people who were ahistorical to make rabid comments and foolish comments. Uh, those are not obviously the way that one should uh, present the past because what it does is offer an astonishing condescension from the present. Uh, I used to say to my students uh, in an introductory lecture, I used to say to them, look, um, let us say that your grandchildren or great-grandchildren, if you're fortunate enough to have any, have the absolute certainty uh, that in their mind you are a criminal because you eat meat or you do something or other like that. Do you want now to stand up and apologize so that they should feel better about it? And I, I would say to them, you could see how ridiculous that notion of inherited guilt is. And indeed, there is something here about the idea of a very ahistorical and primitive idea of inherited guilt in much of the criticism thrown um, by uh, those who wish to decry the British Empire. What was uh, Churchill's worldview as a young Hussars officer in the mid to late uh, 1890s? Well, he was born in 1874. Uh, incidentally, by the way, for listeners, the best biography by far is that by Andrew Roberts. Uh, there are a lot of bad works. I wouldn't pay much attention to that of the just-gone Prime Minister Boris Johnson, or indeed to some of the academic uh, books, but I think the Roberts is very good. Uh, he was born in 1874. His father was Lord Randolph Churchill. I mean, that's a very important point. He, his father was an active um, politician with views of his own, an influential figure, um, and a dynamic figure in a sort of popular conservatism, trying to take conservatism from uh, a matter of inherited privilege or the presentation of it as inherited privilege of the squirearchy, as it were, and to turn it instead into, uh, as through the Primrose League that he ran, a kind of popular um, form of national identity. And also, of course, uh, Winston Churchill was the grandson of the second Duke of Marlborough, a very influential figure for him in some respects, simply of lineage, um, because the duchy went back to uh, John Churchill, first Duke of Marlborough. Um, Winston Churchill wrote a massive life of him. And Churchill, the senior, had played a key role in um, the um, present preservation of uh, British liberties in the Glorious Revolution of 1688 to 89, and then in the uh, defeat of France and its expansionist policies under Louis the Fourteenth. 
So I think both of those are very significant in background terms. Now, Winston Churchill goes to Harrow, then he goes to Sandhurst, the military academy. He does not go to university. That was quite common in that period. Uh, and he was commissioned, as you say, into the Hussars in uh, fashionable regiment, um, cavalry regiment in 1895. And I think it's fair to say that that provided a background for um, a commitment to an activist view of imperial activity. Uh, he was stationed in India um, in 1896, incidentally, the only time in his life that he visited it. Um, and he spent much time there not only playing polo, which is a classic hobby of the um, the landed elite, but also reading, for example, Edward Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Macaulay's History of England, um, and such works as those, which gave him a strong sense of imperial continuity. Was the British Empire no more morally superior uh, uh, than, um, I'm sorry, was the British Empire um, superior, no more superior, morally speaking, than Hitler's Third Reich? That was one of the issues that uh, uh, was brought up at this panel at uh, Churchill College and Cambridge University. No, that was a fatuous comparison, uh, unhelpful, inaccurate, and silly. I mean, it was presumably designed to sort of as the kind of shock jocks that you get on uh, particularly American uh, radio and some of the channels, and it was about that level of gutter sniping. How reprehensible uh, to us, or for that matter, his contemporaries, were Churchill's views on India's place in the British Empire? Well, that's again an interesting question. I think it's fair to say that by the mid-1930s, um, he was regarded as an Edwardian, in other words, as somebody who uh, had attitudes that were seeming to be out of place. And this is, we're talking here about views among conservatives. I mean, it was a conservative majority government, national government, but it's overwhelmingly conservative, that passes the Government of India Act of 1935. And I think I'm correct in saying that... Um, uh, the uh, Halifax, uh, later becomes Halifax, he was at that stage acting under a different aristocratic title, uh, referred to Churchill as very much being an 1890s type of um, imperialist by then. And I think what that captures is the kind of nuance which, quite frankly, uh, the people at Churchill Cambridge were not particularly up to. Um, that empire is not, uh, and imperialism is not a undivided, homogenous, monolithic block of attitudes, assumptions, and policies. And what empire meant uh, was a variety of things in the 1890s. America, empire meant as much the expansion of empire that was going on as the movement towards already far advanced dominion status was for some uh, colonies, etc., etc. So by the 1930s, again, and indeed, uh, you know, in terms of this specific India issue, uh, you can see that in terms of the discussion about the government of India after World War One, um, there were uh, more than one, uh, there's more than one room in the House of Empire. Yes. Uh, did Churchill willfully starve several million Indians 
Yes, that is correct, and that's one of the things that one can readily see uh, coming out of this uh, panel at Churchill College at Cambridge. Uh, how important, because it was also an issue that came up at that panel, how important was Churchill and indeed the UK in the defeat of Nazi Germany? Well, both of them were extremely important, and this wasn't easy in terms of the not just the obviously the generality of imperial struggle, but also one of the particular points about um, that was, has been made in terms of the uh, movement of food within the empire uh, and within the war effort in terms of the allocation of shipping. It's not as though there were unlimited resources. And much of the criticism of British policy, or indeed one might mention of American policy, um, uh, rests upon the idea that somehow these states had unlimited uh, resources and absolute understanding of what was going on. Now, I think it's fair to say that the scholarly literature on the Bengal famine um, is drawing attention to both um, wider issues of the, that particular period in the sense that the uh, movement of grain, in this case rice, um, from uh, Burma, Myanmar, obviously, which, which was the major source, had been stopped by the Japanese conquest in 1942. But there is also questions of specific policies of hoarding by Bengali uh, merchants and um, related issues. And there's, a, a, you know, quite a lot of stuff has been written. And I, I suggest that... Uh, that should be, if people want to look at that particular issue, that's what they should go to. Now, as far as Britain's role in World War II as a whole, and by Britain here, I think we are including uh, both the empire and the uh, dominions, um, you know, Australia, Canada, and so on, um, absolutely crucial. I mean, the, um, if, if you take uh, 1940, uh, by the end of June 1940, France, alas, had been defeated um, and been pushed, forced into the German order. The Netherlands, Belgium, Denmark, Poland and Norway had been conquered. The Soviet Union was an active ally and source of raw materials. Japan was an ally, though not actually fighting alongside Germany. Italy had just entered the war. The United States, of course, was following an isolationist policy um, and therefore indirectly helping both the Soviet Union and uh, Germany. And yes, I think it's fair to say that the crucial role at that point and indeed um, until um, late 41, when obviously first the Soviet Union as a result of German attack and subsequently the United States as a result of a German declaration of war um, came into the conflict. Uh, even thereafter, I shouldn't say even, I mean, because that sounds as though one's in some way, um, you know, that this is something that uh, uh, we have to take that position on. But thereafter, it remained the case 
that Britain played an absolutely crucial role um, in air power, uh, at sea, and on land, uh, both in specific episodes. I mean, the majority of the warships, for example, bombarding Normandy and providing the crucial support for the invasion in um, 1944, D-Day, uh, were British, but also more generally. And, you know, you had, during the Cold War, you had a fashion for emphasizing the uh, uh, the role of the um, Soviet Union. But it's worth pointing out, and I've done a number of books, you know, there are, I think, four books by me on World War II, that the Soviet Union played a key role um, in the defeat of the Wehrmacht, um, and indeed, from the summer of 41 onwards, the majority of Wehrmacht divisions were on the Eastern Front. Uh, but the Soviet Union did not play a key role in the war in the air. The Soviet Union did not play a key role in the war at sea. The Soviet Union only got involved in hostilities against Japan um, in the very last stage of the war. And it is not very helpful to take the view that the Soviet Union plays the key role in the defeat of the Axis. It's just simply not on. Um, the going back briefly to the uh, the Bengal case, since you know it's worth bearing in mind that aside from the specific problems in Bengal, which included harvest shortfall, the, the local, which was Muslim League administration of Bengal, local hoarders, souring infla inflation rate, all of which. Uh, need to be emphasized before you want to start hitting the British over the head. It's also important to consider comparisons. For example, Japan's determination to direct the movement of rice uh, helped to cause uh, large-scale famine in Java and serious difficulties in Korea and the Philippines. And one has to understand the context of wartime uh, food uh, movements and that you can't treat War, a war and what happens in war as if it's an exercise in the board game risk uh, in which you just simply move units at will around the board. That's, a, you know, we see that sometimes in the ignorant public discussion and commentariat discussion of strategy. Uh, well, food is an aspect, supplies are an aspect of strategy, and you get the similar sort of problem in much of the discussion. Sticking with India for a second, what was Churchill's reaction to the massacre in Amritsar in 1919? He was critical. Um, and um, that criticism, I mean, he wasn't um, a fool. Churchill was a horrified at what it meant for the reputation of empire and b he saw it in the specific terms of what was going on as not good. Um, I think, uh, you know, again, I've discussed Amritsar in my, uh, there's a whole chapter on India in the Imperial Legacies book. Um, I think there are many complexities um, in it, but it was a completely wrong action. It's worth bearing in mind, of course, um, that uh, ironically, um, some of the people who criticized the 1919 Amritsar massacre sort of rather ignore what happened in 1984, where Operation Blue Star, where, um, you know, um, casualty rates as about 500 Sikh militants plus were killed. Uh, the casualty rates are now allegedly understood to have been far higher than that. Um, and, you know, there were heavy civilian losses, the use of artillery, 
etc., um, etc. Et and, um, and India itself was criticised by an Amnesty International report in 1992. Now, I'm not saying that Indian subsequent atrocities, and you know well, there are many other instances of Indian atrocities uh, against uh, civilians within India. I'm not saying those in any way. Um, should be used to extenuate the uh, appalling episode in 1919. But I do think that people use uh, need to think about that 1919 in that wider context. And, you know, I've had an Indian historian say to me that they're fed up with what they call British whataboutery in this instance. Well, actually, it is a need to understand context and People who abstract something from context are really not very impressive. So, you know, you know, fair enough criticizing the British, but what precisely does one make of the, you know, the totalitarian emergency of Indira Gandhi in 1975 to 77, uh, in, you know, rule by decree, imprisonment without trial by, of about 140,000 opponents, um, followed by, well, actually it started, I think, in 76, a forcible mass sterilization campaign. Um, or indeed, if you look at, I mean, I quoted, because I actually went to the Andaman Islands, looked at the prison and looked at how it had been memorialized, just to remind you, the cellular jail in the prison is where Fort Blair um, was where um, prisoners against um, the um, it was built, built between 1896 and 1906. It was where prisoners were um, sort of held in uh, in detention. These people had been convicted, um, but you know, um, uh, you know, if you look at the Indian, what the Indian has written up there, for example, I'm just quoting. Uh, the cellular jail, the Indian Bastille, stands as a mute witness to the untold suffering, valiant defiance and undaunted spirit of the firebrand revolutionaries against the brutalities of the British barbarianisms um, and the respect to the freedom fighters dedicated to the nation. Well, that last remark was made by the Indian Prime Minister Moraji Desai when he visited in 1979. Um, Fair enough, he's in fully entitled to his opinion, but he didn't really draw attention to the fact that when he was chief minister of, Bom of Bombay State, now Mumbai, in, uh, in 1955, uh, he ordered police to fire at demonstrators. They killed 105, including an 11-year-old child. Um, in some respects, very reminiscent of Amritsar in 1919. But again, um, you know, people don't like you drawing attention to the problems of maintaining control. Dyer got it wrong. He produced what was an awful episode uh, in his attempt to restore control in Amritsar. It was a crime. It was unnecessary. It was brutal. And it was wrong. Equally, it did not characterize British imperialism as a whole, either in India or more generally. And it also should be put alongside, not in an extenuation, but alongside the long history since independence of the use of dangerous and bloody force by Indian uh, civil authorities, uh, including the use and deployment of troops in order to shoot fellow citizens. Doesn't make it any better that you're shot dead by a fellow citizen. Was Churchill, in the words of Harold Macmillan, quote, the greatest Englishman who ever lived, unquote? 
Oh, I don't know. I mean, that's asking all sorts of questions in terms of how you, again, compare people across the generations. I mean, how do we compare... Um, how do we compare Churchill against Shakespeare or Newton, different generations, different criteria? I think that's a, a tricky one. Um, in terms of the politicians and leaders of his day, he saw, he didn't get everything right, but he saw many issues extraordinarily clearly. He uh, understood the need for a how to exercise and the need for leadership, both in the British context and more broadly in terms of um, the international coalitions that were necessary in order to wage war. He understood that international confrontation and war is not some sort of opt out um, in which you can decide you want to be lovey-dovey, sort of Prime Minister Trudeau maybe of Canada and everybody else will go and be nice to you. He also understood that it involves hard choices and I think from all of those points of view he was extraordinarily impressive. Now not surprisingly those choices was unpopular with some at the time. It was easy to um, you know throw, uh, throw criticism and that criticism uh, continued to be thrown, and it's now in sort of hyperdrive, um, given the uh, debates over, or if that's the term you wish to use, uh, the culture war involving the British past. But I think a lot of this criticism fails to understand the circumstances that Churchill, his country, and the world found themselves in. What does Churchill mean to people today? And what would you characterize uh, his legacy as? Oh, oh, uh, I mean, what he means today depends upon uh, uh, who you are. I mean, um, I, you know, I began Imperial Legacies with an episode in London in Jan on January the 27th, 2018, when a group of 14 led by um, students protested in the blighty UK cafe in Finsbury Park, chanting, we have nothing to lose but our chains. They demanded that the owner apologize to the local community for commemorating Winston Churchill instead of presenting him as a racist who allegedly perpetuated the injustices of the empire. What they specifically didn't like was that the cafe offered a breakfast entitled the Winston and featured decor depicting model, model uh, spitfires and a mock-up of an air raid shelter. Uh, they demanded the, a change of decor and menu, and the Students' Union of the School of African and Oriental Studies, SOAS, uh, part of the University of London, which had been the students responsible, in a statement declared that the cafe, quote, exercises a concerted historical amnesia of British colonialism, which is offensive to those who continue to experience institutional racism. 
um, there had also been a large mural of Churchill that had been repeatedly defaced. Now, the owner, a man called Chris Evans, remarked, if you cannot celebrate Britain and Great Britain's, you are just erasing history. And if you cannot celebrate Churchill, you cannot celebrate anyone. Well, I'm not sure I necessarily agree with that. You can always ignore the criticism made by others and just get on with celebrating whoever you want to celebrate. Most people seem to feel able to do so in front of their own mirror. But the key point I would make about those students is these are this was real childishness. I mean, you know, the idea that you, because you don't like something um, and that it is what you allege it to be, that therefore you're entitled to um, destroy or to deface or to block or to intimidate is a kind of atomization and individualism, which is taking hedonism to its uh, extreme and which is t simple childishness. Now, unfortunately, uh, and, you know, I've obviously spent my career teaching and people would always say to me, aren't students terrible, blah, blah, blah. And I say, no, 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 you shouldn't blame the students. It's their parents. The parents have indulged them. They've, uh, the parents have given them the sense that their views are of absolutely critical importance. So I think in many senses, you've got the sort of child rearing practices in the West over the last 40 years, the one of the major problems. Combined with that, you've obviously got the extent to which the educational system as a whole, although there are many honorable exceptions, but as a whole has been slanted to the left. And what is interesting is that I mean, Churchill in particular got hit, obviously, because he was Prime Minister of Britain again in 1951 to 55. He was an active warner about the threat from communism. He took his quite uh, uh, informed and understanding of the threat posed by Hitler and then repeated it quite rightly in the case of the Soviet Union. And obviously to the left, that view was anathema. And to a certain extent in the criticism of Churchill, what you get is a combination of left-wing Cold War ideology, uh, naive childishness, and a kind of inability to understand that history isn't some theme park for people to have the, you know, their ability to abuse everybody that doesn't match what they would like them to be. Uh, Professor Black, any last words? Yes, I mean, first of all, um, I think you're right to draw attention to this issue. It can be repeated, alas, with all too many issues in history and culture as a whole. And from, for example, destroying the canon of Western literature to attacking the founding principles of the American Republic, um, to any notion of change as being one which is, in a way, democratic. I mean, the point made by Evans, which I think was an absolutely pertinent one, is that Churchill was somebody who was uh, popular. Indeed, in 2002, Churchill was voted as the greatest Britain in a large-scale BBC poll. Um, now, uh, the SOAS people took part, they went on in 2018, in March 2018, to take part in a violent blockade, their statement protesting at the, quote, white supremacist, heteropatriarchal capitalist order. Now, this, of course, is absolute rubbish. 
it is naive and silly, unless you'll find a certain number of academics say this twaddle. Um, uh, but the problem is that it is now all too easy to make yourself popular in the in the sort of uh, and to advance your career as well um, in the circles of academe in the public broadcasting corporations in liberal society by spouting this nonsense and I don't think it's good for people I don't think it's good for their understanding of the ways in which societies operate past or present and I assume the future and I think it is a fantasy a delusion which unfortunately is leading many astray it makes teaching my subject very 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 difficult because inevitably if you bring up um, something which you can argue by the standard forms of historical analysis which is empirical research uh, in accordance with uh, established methodological practice. And if you show what some, then what people don't want to listen to because it upsets them and you're told that that is unacceptable and that in fact uh, in the Enlightenment project, so-called, um, in other words, the use of reason is itself a sort of white supremacist uh, position, then we're in real trouble. We're in real trouble as a culture and as a civilization. And I think that that is where we're at. On that observation, which I would like to agree with entirely, I would like to thank you very much, for Pre Professor Black, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. You've been listening to Arguing History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Black. Thank you very much. And I would urge people to read the Andrew Roberts biography of Churchill and then, if they have time, my own shorter book on imperial legacies. I think they'd find them more instructive and more useful, certainly more accurate than the kind of twaddle you were referring to.